Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. I'm going to be keeping you company for the next hour and we're going to look at some stories making the news here in Ireland and across the world. Coming up on today's show, last week there was a political bombshell dropped in the USA as Robert F. Kennedy announced his independent run for the presidency in 2024. Could this shake up the entire election landscape? Is he a serious contender or just a spoiler? We'll be looking at the man himself with Michael Wendling, who is the US national digital reporter with the BBC. And with businesses all around the world facing many difficult global tensions, companies are turning more and more to former diplomats, politicians and civil servants for advice at boardroom level. Could this trend be linked to the growing number of politicians choosing to exit uh, the political stage here in Ireland? Well, our guest today is Michael O'Dwyer from the Financial Times in London and he's going to help us to explore this intriguing phenomenon. And to round things off today, we're going to be joined by the ESRI, who will be shedding some light on Ireland's ever-evolving discussion on our tax system and how equitable it actually is. You can email me about any of today's items on takingstock at newstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at StockNT. Thanks to everyone for getting in contact with us about last week's show as well. First off today, let's start with this. No, it all depends on who the chairman is. He absolutely has to be sound. How do you mean, sound? Well, a sound man will know what is required. He will perceive the implications. He will have a sympathetic and sensitive insight into the overall problems. In short, he will be sound. You mean bent? Well, no, of course not. No, he will be a man of broad understanding. How about a retired politician? And unimpeachable integrity. Yes, I see what you mean. A businessman? No, really. An academic? No, 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 no. All right, who do you got in mind? Well, I thought perhaps a retired civil servant. (laughs) Good thinking, Humphrey. That was, of course, the irrepressible Sir Humphrey Appleby, the wily old civil servant played brilliantly by Nigel Hawthorne in Yes, Prime Minister. He was constantly getting one over on his political masters, as you might remember. But it seems, though, that for many businesses around the world, civil servants, diplomats and politicians are in big demand nowadays as more and more companies are taking steps to boost their geopolitical expertise to help them to navigate business. Michael O'Dwyer from the Financial Times in London has been writing about this of late and he joins me now. Michael, you're very welcome to Taking Stock. Thanks for having me, Mandy. Now, the movement of, of former politicians and diplomats and even civil servants from politics to business isn't, isn't really a new phenomenon. But what unique skill set do these type of people bring to companies? Well, I think broadly that they bring two things. The first is that in some cases, a lot of these people, diplomats, politicians, ex-intelligence officials or spies, do genuinely have expertise and deep understanding of of geopolitical issues, of issues around how governments approach particular problems, particularly as they relate to business, whether that's um, awarding of contracts, whether it's uh, access to particular markets or what those governments' views on certain industries might be. And that's extremely valuable to businesses to have an understanding of, particularly if if it's in a market where they're looking to expand or looking to make more money. The second thing that they can bring, of course, is access. A lot of these people are supremely well connected. Their phone books are um, in the eyes of international businesses to die for, and they can make those all-important connections that mean businesses are quite happy to pay them an extremely high fee per hour 
because um, in the long run, if you can win a big contract or make sure that you have proper access or are in with the right people, then quite simply, it's it's worth paying the fee. Yeah, now let's take the first of those two things really and just look at it because you mentioned geopolitical experience um, and that's really what your article is about, how you know, traditionally we have seen all of this happen before, but it's happening more and more now. Why is geopolitical experience in this time more important for companies? Well, I think one of the things that, that we've all heard and thought about recently is is sort of how the world is changing around us. And so sort of neoliberal world order of of, of increase ever increasing globalization has been challenged a little bit in recent years. I mean, in this part of the world, we've had Brexit. Uh, more recently, we've obviously seen the Russia-Ukraine war, which has had huge knock-on impacts in terms of um, energy prices and all kinds of other security issues. Mm. Um, at the same time, you have China as a rising power and its relations with the Western world being particularly difficult. And companies are also looking forward towards a possible Trump presidency and what that might mean and whether U.S. policies might change towards business and equally whether U.S. foreign relations with other countries might change. So that injects a huge amount of uncertainty into the world for businesses and they're trying to make plans and investments um, against that backdrop. And so any advantage that they can gain in understanding how to navigate that difficult backdrop is basically worth paying for. Mm, yeah, but that, that makes sense given the you know prolific amount of uncertainty that there is uh, on a global scale that we're all acutely aware of now, largely due to to our news, which is you know in, in our front rooms and we're all aware of it. But I guess businesses got to plan ahead and and got to know what's coming around the corner as opposed to just hearing about it on the news. So traditionally, we've seen politicians move really to banks, maybe even energy companies. But what type of other industries are now really trying to get ahead of things by putting these people into their executives or onto their boards? I think those industries that you mentioned are definitely still doing that. But I suppose what one of one of the areas that came out in, in our reporting in this piece that I was doing with colleagues um, was the tech industry. And I think that's uh, understandable when you look at the amount of regulation around the tech industry and the fight for what it's going to look like. Um, there's been a lot of talk about companies like Facebook and Google, for example, facing pressure uh, from competition authorities um, in, in the EU in particular, but also they've had run-ins with uh, regulators in the US and the UK. We mentioned in our piece um, a little bit about Microsoft, which of course recently has spent about $75 billion acquiring um, a gaming company called Activision. And that was a, a, clearly an extremely valuable and important deal for Microsoft, but required a huge amount of um, legal advice, but also um, sort of government relations advice in a charm offensive um, against or towards um, authorities and governments to try and explain to them why this deal shouldn't be blocked on comp on the back of competition concerns that have been expressed. Yeah, I think the tech sector is particularly interesting um, when you look at um, how they are trying to navigate governments and EU and even the UN at the moment because they're an industry who've kind of been built on a tradition of move fast and break things, not understanding that actually there are regulatory issues. And then on the other side, politicians now trying to get their arms around it to protect the public are bringing in things and legislation like the Digital Services Act. And you're seeing very quickly, I think, huge fines for, for Twitter and TikTok. Um, but so you mentioned that this is an industry that is kind of 
doing more, but what more are they doing? Like, how are they making the connection between themselves and, and, and politicians? I know there's that famous one of Nick Clegg going to Facebook. What other initiatives have you seen? Well, I think this this broadly you can you can split what's happening not just in the tech sector but elsewhere into, into two categories. There's people hiring in-house, mm. creating teams that actually work for your company, and Microsoft is one of those companies that has done this quite effectively. Spent a lot of money um, building up a sort of legal policy influence machine. I mean, I think my colleagues have previously reported at the FT that it costs Microsoft nearly $1 billion a year to run its entire influence operation, if you include things like corporate affairs and legal professionals. Um, And so that is a a huge investment on the part of all of these companies. And the other other part, as well as just building up your internal teams, which are on your normal staff, is that you can hire outside consultants. And some of those people are freelance people, but others work through, um, you know, very large consulting organizations. So you think about people like, um, or companies like Teneo, um, which of course was was founded, co-founded by Declan Kelly um, from Tipperary. And that that was one of those companies that built up uh, expertise advising, obviously on, on more general public relations um, type matters for companies, but equally was able to tap people like Bill Clinton and Tony Blair as advisors um, that could be wheeled out when necessary for clients. And that sort of influence is the sort of thing that big companies um, are buying often when they hire and and expertise is what they're buying when they hire in these external consultants. Mm. And we're going to look at the other side of that in a moment. But if you're just tuning in, folks, you're listening to Michael O'Dwyer from the Financial Times in London. And he's been writing about the movement of politicians, civil servants and diplomats into the world of business. Michael, let's just take a look at this from the other perspective. I don't know if you've been following this, but we've seen quite a lot of rather young politicians now announce here in Ireland that they're not going to run again. Could that be a reflection of the fact that maybe politics is just a very difficult um, industry to be in now, a very difficult career, and that maybe they've got the experience that you spoke about earlier, the, you know, 360 geopolitical um, information that you need in a business like this, and also the access. Do you think that that's part of maybe what we're seeing here in Ireland, more younger politicians choosing not to run again? Look, I think in every country, there's there's always a question of that revolving door and whether it's something that's healthy or not. Um, it's it's something that, as you said earlier, has is, is not new. Um, to to a degree, you can understand why someone who's been in politics um, might want to move into the private sector. They can probably make more money. They probably are not as in the in the in the public limelight in the same way that they would be as a politician. Um, and they, you know, frankly, don't face the amount of scrutiny that they might otherwise from the media or from the general public and their constituents. Mm. So you can understand why that would happen. I mean, just you, you, you mentioned the Irish context, but that's equally true here in the UK at the moment. Um, you know, a lot of people are expecting uh, a change of government here at, at the next election, probably next year. And if the Labour Party were to come in, all of a sudden people who have connections to that party might look a lot more valuable to the private sector. And indeed, that's something that we've been reporting on here at the FT already, mm. um, you know, that we've been seeing companies trying to cozy up to the Labour Party, trying to have good relations. And I think that's always going to be the case um, in, 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 in any country, frankly. And Ireland's definitely no different in that respect. Mm. So presumably people with foreign affairs experience, diplomatic experience are going to be good on that geopolitical side of things, the access. What other type of people um, are companies and boards looking for now? 
well, look, I think I think all of the the, the this types of skill sets that, that would traditionally be looked for. So often people in sort of communications type roles, you see people who've been in political communications moving into moving into um, the private sector, um, you know, people who are skills uh, in, in, in crisis management, I think, are, are, are still valuable. Um, equally, areas like defence um, are, are always always looked at, um, I think, closely, particularly in in, in sectors such as um, the sort of weapons and defence industry, where you need that understanding of what governments are thinking, what they're looking for when they're handing out contracts to buy weapons and procure arms. Um, and that's particularly, obviously, uh, an, an industry that's been in focus um, with the amount of money being spent supplying arms to Ukraine and its resistance um, to Russia. Um, look, we, we could go on because areas like competition law, for example, have become um, particularly um, sort of important in certain industries. We mentioned tech earlier and making sure that you have the lawyers and the policy specialists and people who have worked at regulators who understand how regulators think mm. is extremely important if those regulators have the power to effectively force you to change how you run your business. Yeah, that's a very interesting point, particularly on, I suppose you mentioned earlier, the intelligence agencies um, that people are also looking to, like MI6 and, and the Met even. Uh, you've often hearing now people leaving early to kind of go into companies. Is that a kind of reflection of the risks associated with more global security issues and the fact that they're borderless? If you've got that, you know, experience at one level, it can translate worldwide. Absolutely. And I think it's also a reflection of the fact that these are now board level issues and C-suite level issues within companies in the way that previously, perhaps in a more stable environment, they weren't. It was possible for boards maybe not to have that type of expertise um, on hand and on call at any time that they needed it because they were living in a much more stable environment. Whereas now, if your entire supply chain is globalized mm. and there are various flashpoints in the world um, you know, that, that could potentially happen that would jeopardize that, then you need to be live to those risks. You need to be able to plan for it and be ready. Um, one example might be microchips, obviously incredibly important um, in in the, the tech sector and have a, a large number of applications. If you're reliant on a Taiwanese supplier, then you need to be absolutely up to speed on China, the China-Taiwan situation and those tensions that exist there. And you need to have a plan for how you're going to deal with that. Mm. Michael, before I let you go, as you said earlier, you, you worked on this piece with a number of colleagues. Was there something that drew you to it? Was there a particular incident that, that attracted you, that led you down this road? I think really it was the just the realization that more we were hearing more and more about examples of this happening um, and we were hearing more and more about boards and board members who were telling us that they were fretting about issues that they either didn't personally have the understanding of or they never really had to um, consider it before at least not on a regular basis it, there might have been geopolitical flashpoints in the past but in recent years with things like Brexit, like the Russia-Ukraine war, like tensions in China and the risk of a further a second Trump pres pres presidency. Um, it just felt like they were dealing with these issues all the time mm. and needed that expertise. And I think it was those conversations that drove us to, to ask some more questions and look at it a bit more deeply. Well, Michael, it definitely was a fascinating article and it's still there on the Financial Times website if anyone wants to take a look at it. That was Michael O'Dwyer from the Financial Times in London. Michael, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. And coming up after the break, our tax system. Is it creating a fair society? Well, the ESRI is going to be joining me to discuss after this short break.
You welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, recent research by the Economic and Social Research Institute showed that for incomes uh, for the poorest 10% in the Republic fell in 2020 to 2021. It also showed us that there were growth for other lower income groups. So this data raises some questions. Are we as a society doing enough to help this group and has Budget 2024 done anything to move things along? Well, I'm joined now by Dr. Karina Durley, who's Senior Research Officer at the ESRI. Karina, you're very welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. Thank you very much, Mandy. Now just um, maybe give us, I suppose, an, an an idea of how research like this is conducted. What are you looking at um, and what are you trying to find out when you're doing this research? That's a great question to start with because it's always um, very difficult to explain sort of how we've come to our conclusions without going through how we did it. So let me start with that. So what we found is that budget 2024 is likely to result in a rise in real incomes next year. And I say real incomes because that's important. So we are expecting wages to rise anyway next year, so by about 5%. So if you consider a scenario where wages are rising, but the entry point, let's say, to the top rate of tax is fixed and welfare payments are fixed in cash terms, you'd be in a situation where households are paying a higher proportion of their income in tax and receiving relatively less in welfare income compared to households who have somebody at work. Mm. So that distorts the income distribution. So what we do is compare what's actually announced in the budget to a scenario in which that distortion doesn't happen. So where um, the parameters of the tax and welfare system are indexed or increased in line with projected income growth. So that's what we've done for this analysis. And what we found is that the budget is actually indexing most tax thresholds, credits and welfare payments by more than forecast, more than this 5% forecast income growth. Um, And because that's above um, projected income growth and inflation for next year, it's going to result in extra real purchasing power for most households next year. And we estimate those gains are about 2% of disposable income on average, but that there will be larger gains for low-income households. So particularly for the lowest 10th income of households. Okay, so the concerns that you had pre-budget about the incomes for the poorest 10%, which fell when you compared 2020 with 2021, are they now... Um, negated by the budget? Is that what you're saying? Or do you still have those reservations about that bottom 10%? Um, I suppose we have reservations on two fronts when we think about household incomes here. So firstly, the gains that we estimate are largely coming through temporary measures. So they're coming through all of these one-off payments and lump sum payments. Um, Last year, when we did this analysis last year, all of the gains were through temporary measures. This year, there are small gains through the permanent changes to the tax and welfare system, but they're quite uneven. So if you take the example of uh, retirement age households, if we exclude all of these temporary measures from our analysis, um, retirement age households are actually left worse off after budget 2024 compared to a budget that was pegged to income growth. So that's sort of one reservation we'd have that, you know, lots of this growth is just coming through temporary measures that, and there's no guarantee that those will be repeated. And the second is that actually this budget is performing a bit of a catch up, as you alluded to. So if we look at the last few budgets, um, many changes in tax and welfare policies didn't keep up with inflation. So they didn't keep household income constant in real terms. And this budget does slightly reverse this trend. But if we take, let's say, the last four budgets together since 2020, we find that many households and particularly low and middle income households are worse off compared to a scenario where the tax and welfare system kept up with income growth. So in other words, kept their real income constant. Mm. 
So look, to be fair to the government, your contention here is that it's doing enough, but the measures are temporary and they're not built into and guaranteed for next year. OK, but they're, they are delivering a lot. An energy credit of €450 Euro across three installments, a Christmas bonus, one off double payments and all that. So they could they would sit here where I'm sitting and say, actually, those temporary uh, payments are going to help those families an awful lot and would find it very hard, I think, to 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 take you know an analysis which would say it's going to put even from the the old age pension backwards. So, um, the, I suppose the question I'm supposed to asking you there is realistically, a lot of people would say, although these are temporary in nature, um, are government likely to resile from them next year? I mean, it's very easy to give these. It's tremendously difficult to take things back as we've seen with everything from USE to social welfare payments over the years and even the energy credit which which is extended and increased. There's no doubt that the, the temporary measures are doing a really good job of sheltering um, households from the effects of inflation and I, th- I think there was a really good credible case for these over the last couple of years. I mean even thinking back to the pandemic um, because the extent and also the duration of inflation was quite uncertain. So we didn't know how high prices were going to go and we didn't know how long they were going to stay there, if they might come back down. Mm. We're in a situation now where we we know that we're stuck with a higher price level. We're not expecting any deflation. Um, So I I think there's less of a case for continuing one-off payments. Um, And, you know, while they do sort of uh, provide this sort of income boost, for all households, but particularly low-income households, they also lend a degree of uncertainty to household budgeting. So, you know, if we are satisfied that we are not going to experience deflation in the next couple of years, um, more or less the parameters of the tax system have kept up with inflation over the last couple of years. So um, people who are not in receipt of welfare payments and who are in receipt of uh, wages from work, and they're not paying a higher proportion of their income in tax because the tax system has kept up with inflation. The same is not true for welfare payments. So welfare payments have been very much supplemented by these temporary measures. At some point, if the temporary measures stop, we could be in a situation where income inequality is rising because we have, uh, you know, a, a sort of widening of the income distribution because lower income households or those dependent on welfare um, haven't seen their incomes keep up with inflation. So I think at that point, we're really thinking, you know, it, it's time to either readjust the social welfare rates, have some sort of benchmarking exercise. Do we still think they're adequate for people to survive on? Um, do we need any more sort of permanent one-off payments on a yearly basis? Um, I, th- I think it's time to get back to a level of certainty about what people ex- can expect for, from year to year. Mm. So, I mean, your your contention really is that these once-off payments are effectively just plastering over inflationary pressures at the minute and you want it in built, in, been built into the system. I, I mean, I think when you think back to, you know, the really high surges in prices that we saw, one-off measures were a great idea because they arrived in people's bank accounts when they had to pay their bill. Mm. Um, you know, there was, there was no messing around. Um, and they were a great idea then. But now that inflation is levelling off, we've got wages growing, we have full employment. Um, I, it, you know, it, it's time to readjust the system and stop plastering over it, as he put it. Mm. Um, I just want to go back to your original research, if I can, for a second. And um, one of the things you mentioned was the material deprivation rate. Um, can you just talk me through that analysis, what it equates to uh, and what you found? 
So um, we measure poverty in a number of different ways. So we have the at-risk of poverty rate, which is just the proportion of people who are uh, whose income adjusted for their household size is below a certain level. But we also have a deprivation rate that we use to measure um, poverty. And the deprivation rate tells you, um, you know, among all households in the country, um, how many can't afford essentials, things like, you know, sturdy shoes, uh, winter coat, um, you know, nutritious food, that kind of thing. Um, so while our analysis can, um, sim- we, we can estimate the effect of policy changes on poverty because it's directly linked to income, right? So the at-risk of poverty rate. We can't estimate the effect of policy changes on the mm. deprivation rate, which is a lot more subjective and really um, tends to be more linked to price levels than to income. And where is that information coming from? So the CSO collect information um, in their annual survey of income and living conditions. Mm-hmm. They survey a representative sur- uh, sample of households. And among other things, they ask them about their income and they ask them questions about whether they're able to afford essentials. So, you know, from year to year, we have, uh, you know, a kind of metric that tells us how we're doing on poverty rates in this country. OK, look, we've seen a lot of analysis um, of budget 2024, I think particularly from a macro level, lots of talk about corporation tax and what's happened on, on the bigger front. How do you feel as an overall package for this particular cohort of people, this this um, budget can be viewed from households? I mean, I think from a household level, there are lots of positives to take from the budget. Um, you know, a, a rise in real incomes on average for most households is very positive. Now, I, I mean, our sort of nitpicking about the, the distinction between temporary mm. and permanent measures aside, um, some of the uh, some of the gains are distributed a little unevenly. So I've already mentioned retirement age households, but households affected by disability also see lower gains from permanent changes to the tax and welfare system. So there is sort of an, a slightly uneven distribution of the gains. But I think, you know, overall, it is it is a very um, uh, there are lots of positives to take from the budget. Um, you know, our analysis is more sort of forward looking to next year when we get to this point next year and we're thinking about budget 2025 and um, we would really like to see a move away from the temporary measures and the this sort of uncertainty that goes with it and to have you know sort of a, a a strategy to either index or compensate people from for the rising cost of living or for income growth. Before I let you go I just wanted to ask you one final question really and it, it relates to child poverty. I know that uh, one of the things you'd put forward was targeted welfare support but have you seen any evidence of that when you're talking about reducing child poverty levels in particular? So in the run up to the budget, there was an awful lot of talk Mm. about how it would address child poverty, how it would be very targeted to bring down child poverty. Really, there weren't that many uh, changes or reforms in the budget, I think, that adequately did that. So, I mean, there were there were measures that affect children. We have increases to the national childcare scheme, the subsidy for formal childcare, the free school books for junior cycle. Uh, You know, there were some positive measures. But overall, I mean, if you really want to bring down child poverty rates, uh, I mean, we did a colleague of mine, Barry Rontree and I did um, some analysis on this over the summer. And um, the areas that you need to target are um, social welfare payments um, that including disability allowance and the one parent family payment, uh, because we know that about half of children in poverty are children of either lone parents or people with disabilities or the working families payment, which targets the working poor. So people who are in work, uh, but on low incomes and have children. So those are really the areas we would have liked to see um, some progress. We did also uh, suggest that it, an, an extra means tested 
um, child benefit would be beneficial. And we had costed that. Um, but really, I, I mean, while there was an increase in the working family payment, mm. I don't think it really went far enough to make a measurable difference. OK, well, again, you know, if the government were here, they would put those package of measures to you. And even though I know you're not happy with the once off nature of them, we still have to recognise that that they were there. Um, but Karina, I think that's a fascinating um insight into looking at Budget 2024 and indeed those particular levels and cohorts uh, in, in a very detailed way. So thank you very much for taking the time to share that information and that insight with us. That was uh, Dr. Karina Durley, who's Senior Research Officer at the ESRI. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. Now, last week, a bombshell broke in the US as American political royalty broke ranks and went solo. Join me after the break for the amazing story... You welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now for our final item today, take a quick listen to this. But the good news is that people like yourselves are finally fed up. Something is stirring in us that says it doesn't have to be this way. People stop me everywhere at airports, at hotels and malls on the street. And they remind me that this country is ready for a history making change. Are ready. They are ready to reclaim their freedom, their independence. And, and that's why I'm here today. I'm here to declare myself an independent candidate. That was, of course, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. as he announced last week that he would run as an independent candidate in next year's U.S. presidential election. He's the son of a former senator and presidential candidate, Robert F. Kennedy himself. And he doesn't really look like he's going to be crowned president, but he does look like he's going to upset the field for sure. So as the race heats up, what we wanted to do today was to take a look at the effect that his candidacy might have on both the Republican and the Democratic Party. And to do that, I'm delighted to be joined now by Mike Wending. He is the US national digital reporter with the BBC. Mike, you're very welcome to News Talk today. Thanks for having me. Now, look, he's not really the typical Kennedy figure as we know them as like American political royalty. But let's start with his early background, his political lineage and his early profession, just to give us a sense of of, of his roots and where he came from. Yeah, sure. Well, he grew up obviously in that Kennedy family, heavily political. He forged a career as an environmental mental lawyer, and uh, quite a successful career, it must be said. Uh, he was well known for taking on environmental causes, uh, taking it to big business on the campaign trail. He uh, repeatedly brings up the uh, big cases that he's worked on. Uh, famously, he was part of a big initiative that um, cleaned up the Hudson River that flows through New York. Um, and that was uh, the first of his career. Uh, but uh, more recently, he's become more well-known for his anti-vaccination uh, activism. Uh, he started a uh, not-for-profit organization uh, that has repeatedly um, cast doubt on um, vaccinations, uh, has repeated debunked science about uh, links between uh, vaccines and autism. Now, um, that uh, organization, Children's Health Defense, had a, had a boost support uh, both money and followers during the pandemic. Uh, we saw the anti-vaccination movement, particularly in the United States, but, you know, in, in countries all around the world, Ireland included, were, were boosted during the pandemic and, and all the sort of um, 
you know, stress and um, debate about uh, health care issues and stuff that was going on there. Mm. So yeah. that's kind of the his the, the source of his current public uh, profile yeah, that's right now, in addition to that famous name. That, exactly. And that's certainly what kind of brought him into present day politics and discussions and the anti-vax stuff. We, we all became much more aware of him. But where does he see it, like in the Kennedy family and in the Democratic Party family itself? Let's start with the family. Does he have that same type of charisma that we've come to to know and love, certainly here in Ireland, of the Kennedy family? Well, you know, he definitely has the looks. You know, he looks like his father. He looks like his uncle. Uh, you probably heard from the clip there that he has um, a, a, a slight sort of um, injury to his vocal cords. So, um, you know, I, I would have to say that, like, you know, in terms of his um, charisma, he's not such a uh, compelling um, speaker when it comes out, um, you know, when he's sort of like on the campaign trail. Mm. Um, he, his voice has definitely been sort of affected. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, inter- it's interesting to sort of like go, see somebody who, you know, looks like a classic Kennedy um, but, um, you know, perhaps does not have the natural political gifts that some of his other relatives have. Mm. Well, look, he is a part of that dynasty, no matter what way we look at it. But he's also very much anti-establishment. Um, America already has quite a forceful anti-establishment candidate running in next year's general election, uh, presidential election. Uh, how will he sit with Trump supporters um, who may be kind of tiring of Trump himself, but maybe like the anti-establishment features of the Kennedy uh, campaign and what he's offering? Yeah, I mean, that is the uh, billion-dollar question, isn't it? Um, how is he going to affect that? Is he going to pull support from Joe Biden or the Democrats or or from Donald Trump? Um, I, I talked to a lot of Kennedy supporters. I went to just a couple of days before that speech that you heard in that clip. Um, I went to a rally in Michigan, um, Lansing, Michigan, the state a capital. It's kind of surrounded by, you know, suburbs and farms. So it's a pretty good sort of cross section. Mm. And um, I, I found people there who were drawn by the Kennedy mystique, who said that they were Democrats. I also found people who uh, said that they supported Donald Trump. Um, it's an unscientific sample, but I would say perhaps slightly more people had a positive view, more positive view of Donald Trump. Um, but you're right there. You know, Donald Trump being the anti-establishment candidate, there's not a whole uh, lot of room in this race for another one. So the supporters of Donald Trump that I met there tended to tell me that, um, you know, while they really liked Trump in terms of his policies, they didn't really like him as a person. They didn't really like sort of his course persona in the way that he was conducting politics. And they thought that, you know, he, he had too much sort of drag on him as a as a political candidate. Mm. So that's why they were looking for an alternative. Um, that is, you know, that's an unscientific sample of, uh, you know, a, a few dozen um, supporters that I spoke to. Uh, but that the polls kind of sort of bear that out. Um, it's it's going to be a close run thing in terms of like how much support he takes from one party or the other. Absolutely. And, you know, all of the polls are indicating that it's going to be a rerun of Biden versus Trump again and that they're neck and neck, you know, at this stage. But can you just um, 
maybe talk a little bit to us about the effect that potentially um, he could have on Joe Biden were he to run as, as an independent candidate. And of course, there's there's quite a few hoops to go through, even if he could become uh, an independent candidate. But just kind of give us a sense of what effect he might be, although not tipped to win or anything. How could he affect that campaign for President Biden? Yeah, I mean, this has been an interesting dynamic that's kind of developed over the past year. And um, I mean, as remarkable as it sounds like we have a year to go, right, <laughs> the actual election. But, but, you know, when Kennedy threw his hat in the ring early in the year, he threw it in the Democratic primary. He was directly challenging Joe Biden. Um, he was getting support, uh, you know, a, a small but significant, so up to about 20 percent um, in terms of Democrats who were willing to vote for him in the primary. Um, the um, Biden camp, uh, you know, was sort of uh, dismissing his challenge. Um, some other sort of Democratic strategists were a little bit more worried. But that has sort of shifted as the public has known more about why he is running at this particular uh, point. And perhaps who didn't know about his anti-vaccine stance have, have sort of learned about that. Um, his favorability ratings among Republicans have gone up. His favorability ratings against among Democrats have gone down. Mm. So um, that sort of um, idea that he's going to hurt Joe Biden, has, uh, um, that everybody was um, saying was the conventional wisdom um, when he began this uh, crusade, uh, is now um, really kind of uncertain. And um, it's, it was becoming clear that he wasn't getting any traction in the Democratic primary, right? And mm. so this is why he has dropped out of that process, and then he's gone as an independent. Now, you mentioned that it's really difficult. Um, there, you have to actually get on the ballot. If you don't have a big uh, political party behind you, it is a laborious task. It's different in every state, all 50 of them. It involves petitions, volunteers, um, you know, a lot of money spent just to get your name on the ballot. It is a very difficult challenge. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, it's, it's certainly not an even uh, simple endeavour. With the backing of a party, you see that there's nobody kind of coming through to challenge uh, Donald Trump within the Republican Party. Um, and I think that, yeah, if, if we maybe look back historically at people who have run in the presidential race as an independent, is there anyone you can point to who really skewed the vote at the end of the day? Well, you know, the example that everybody uh, turns to is the 2000 election, that very, very close election between George W. Bush and Al Gore. It came down to Florida. It came down to 500 votes in Florida, 527 votes. Um, also in that uh, uh, election was uh, Ralph Nader, the Green Party candidate, long-time political activist here. Now, nearly 100,000 people in Florida voted for Ralph Nader. You would think that they would tend to prefer the Democrat, Al Gore, and that if uh, Mr. Nader was not running, uh, they might have uh, it might have swung the election the other way. Mm. Um, it's not so clear cut, though, because, you know, a lot of third party um, uh, supporters and this is completely borne out by the people I was talking to the other day in Michigan. They, they won't vote. Uh, they'll vote for anybody except for the for the two main candidates. They, if, if the Green Party voters might not necessarily vote, uh, break to the Democrat at all. Mm. Um, it, it was pointed out to me by a political analyst that it, it's actually sort of the weakness of Al Gore as a candidate that was a much greater factor than any sort of third party candidate, Ralph Nader or anyone else um, uh, running in the, in the election. So, you know, these third party candidates, they don't get traction in American elections. Um, but on the other hand, um, you know, there is a... 
uh, a significant um, third party movement or, or, you know, group of people who generally sort of um, brush off the two main parties, you know, and, and go for an independent candidate. That's right. Who just want to go for an independent, no matter who they are. If you're just tuning in, folks, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm speaking to Mike Wendling. He is the US national digital reporter with the BBC. And we're talking about Robert Kennedy Jr.'s entry into the presidential race as an independent candidate. Um, just to go back to him for a second, um, and we talked earlier on about him really coming to prominence as an anti-vax candidate. But when you were listening to him last week and when he was doing his big stump speech, how prevalent was that type of sentiment uh, in his offering now? Or is he trying to really lean into that or is he dampening that down a little bit? Yeah, it's definitely the latter. Um, You know, I've been following his campaign since he launched it um, earlier in the year and he has really tried to de-emphasize that part of it. He doesn't shy away from it. He will talk about it. Uh, His supporters will talk about it. But, you know, there was maybe one or two mentions in his stump speech um, uh, the other day when I, when I saw him. Uh, it, was, it didn't sort of come up prominently in his campaign announcement either. Um, so, you know, it's something that while it's his current reputation is based off, he's, he's actually more leaning into the Kennedy legacy. Mm. Told a long story about being with his father in Poland and uh, hundreds of thousands of people coming out on the streets of communist Poland. Um, uh, you know, in the, in the 1960s when he was traveling with his father. And so he's, he's, he's playing that up a, a lot. I think he probably realizes that while there are uh, a significant number of people who, um, you know, are uh, sign up to his anti-vax agenda, um, it's not going to be a popular uh, vote winner. It's not mm. going to sort of um, push him over the line anywhere. And Mike, what if the Kennedy family themselves, have they said anything about his participation? Would they be relieved that he's not running on a Democratic ticket? And um, we have uh, Joe Kennedy here, who is now the US ambassador in Northern Ireland, uh, doing some uh, commercial outreach for them on trade and, and such issues. But are there any other Kennedys who are still in the mix of politics today in America? Well, as you know, the Kennedy family is a large Irish Catholic family, so it's hard to sort of, um, you know, get a, a consensus. Um, but many of the most prominent members have said that he, they don't think it's a very good idea. You know, they're um, staunch Democrats and staunch Biden Democrats, many of them. Um, you know, what I, what I think is interesting is that, um, you know, uh, in terms of elected politicians, the Kennedys have largely gone away from American life. So it's people actually who are in, um, you know, the baby boomer generation, retirees who actually remember the heyday of the Kennedys. It was quite a long time ago. Um, you know, it, it, it's that sort of nostalgia for the 60s that is, that is really sort of like playing on and that um, RFK Jr. is playing on, too. Mm. Um you know, the, the Kennedys as a political force certainly are not as um, uh, prominent these days as, as so, several of the other sort of uh, prominent American political families. So how do you think uh, this will play out then, Mike? Do you think he'll just withdraw from the race at some point or how do you see it um, filtering out? Uh, you know, given his name, given the financial backing of, uh, you know, some pretty big donors that he has and his foundation, I think he's in it for the long haul. Mm. Uh, I think he will not be backing out uh, anytime soon. Um, Again, he's going to have to raise a lot of money simply to get on the ballot in a lot of these places. Uh, But 
um, you know, it, it, it's yet, we're yet to see how this all plays out. At the moment, um, and, you know, keep in mind that things can change. We have two very unpopular candidates who are leading their parties, right? Mm-hmm. At least in terms of the presidency. And, um, it, you know, in that, in that scenario, uh, there is space for third party candidates to pick up some part of the vote. Um, there was a candidate, Ross Perot, in the 1990s who got a significant amount of, uh, of the vote. Um, but he, he reached his ceiling early on. In other words, as the election approaches and people realize that he won't win, they tend to sort of peel off to one of the other parties. You know, the, whoever they they dislike least, they might vote for just to keep the other person out. Uh, they don't want to waste their vote on a third party. So that might happen here. I would expect that... Um, you know, uh, Kennedy, just because of his name, would poll, you know, significant li- numbers, um, you know, maybe in the region 5, 10, 15 percent. He may not be able to sustain that. Um, you know, we'll see how, how it goes uh, from here. But he's got an uphill battle to um, even get on the ballot in most places. Well, look, it's true what they say. A week is certainly a long time in politics. And when you look at American politics, a year is an aeon. But I'm sure this is something that we will revisit again in the future. And I hope, Mike, you come back and join us again. But for now, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us today. That was Mike Wendling, the US national digital reporter with the BBC. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings. We're always available as a podcast first on Friday mornings on the News Talk app or wherever you get your podcasts from. As always, I'd like to thank all of today's guests for their time and their insight. Also, my thanks to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Stephen Daunt and Jack MacDonald on research and Hugo De Silva on sound. Any comments on today's show, you can always email me at takingstock at newstalk.com. And stay tuned, folks, for Anton Savage, who's coming up next with his first Sunday show. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.